Hello, I'm Catherine Carr, producer of Talking Politics. In this week's episode of History of Ideas, brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, David discusses the autobiography of Frederick Douglass, the former slave who became one of the most prominent figures in 19th century America. Even as a child, Douglass knew that slavery was indefensible. So why did America allow it to persist? In the first of these talks, I said that Jean-Jacques Rousseau posed what is in some ways the definitive version of the why question or, or the how question. Why do the rich have so much and the poor have so little? But more to the point, why are they the ones who get to make the rules? Why is it their world and we just live in it? But in some ways, the purest version of that question, the why question, which as we'll see is also a how question, is the one that was posed 100 years later by Frederick Douglass. In the second of his autobiographies, he wrote three. The second one is called My Bondage and My Freedom. That's the one I'm going to focus on, though. I'll have a little bit to say about the first autobiography, too. But in 1855, in that book, Douglass posed a question which in many ways was the defining question of his life. And it was one that he asked in various forms throughout his life, or at least he posed it to his audiences. It was a very long life, We don't actually know exactly when Frederick Douglass was born because he was born a slave. He thought that he was probably born in February 1818, but even at the end of his life, at the very end of his long life, he was still trying to find out the exact date of his birth because birth dates were not marked for people like him. He died in 1895. So 1818 to 1895, that is a life that traverses the 19th century and the year of his birth was the year that Andrew Jackson invaded Florida to take it from the Spanish. The year of his death, 1895, was the year in which the first patent for an automobile was registered in the United States. That is a long life. And he saw 19th century America unfold. He saw the end of slavery. He saw Reconstruction. And he saw the end of Reconstruction and the rebirth of a racist order in the American South. He saw the emergence of a new age of inequality, the Gilded Age. But the question that he poses in that autobiography was one, as he says there, he asked himself first, right at the beginning of his life. So when he was a young child, maybe age seven or eight, he asked himself this question, the purest possible version of Rousseau's question. And I'll just read it from the text. Why am I a slave? Why are some people slaves and others masters? Was there ever a time when this was not so? How did the relation commence? Why am I a slave was the question that Frederick Douglass asked when he was age seven or eight. And when he was age seven or eight, he concluded that there was no answer to that question that he could accept in the sense that there was no possible justification for his condition. So he thought about it, and obviously he's describing this with hindsight, but it's plausibly the thought process of a child. He knew, as he says, that there were some black people of his acquaintance who were not slaves, and he knew there were some white people of his acquaintance who were not slaveholders. So as he says, the answer cannot be colour. 
In other words, the answer cannot be something in nature as he saw it. There is no natural explanation for this hierarchy. And if there is no natural explanation for this hierarchy, then he thinks the only possible answer is not, as he says, colour, but crime. This is something that cannot be justified. It can only be explained as one set of people taking freedom, stealing freedom from another set of people. So there is no possible justification for slavery. And that was a position that he came to as a child, and he never deviated from. And one of the implications of it, and it's something that he insisted on throughout his life, is that there is no argument to be made against slavery, because to argue against slavery is to imply the possibility of a counter-argument for slavery. And Douglas was absolutely clear that there was nothing to be said for and against. This was something that simply could not be explained in terms that the slave, Frederick Douglass, could accept. Not by anyone, not ever. And he never did accept it. So there is a line in Rousseau's second discourse when he's talking about his why question, why are these people in charge, where he says certain kinds of attempts to explain it, that is to justify it, are themselves symptoms of the condition rather than explanations of the condition. That is, Rousseau says, these are the kinds of arguments that slaves are required to make because they are slaves. They are required to justify the authority of their masters because their masters can tell them what to do. And that kind of justification is simply emblematic of slavery. It does not justify slavery. And that's exactly what Douglas thought. And what he saw among fellow slaves as he was growing up and it broke his heart in many ways, because there was nothing to argue about or with. The arguments were about whether slaves had good masters or bad masters, and there was often disputes between slaves as to who had the better master. And as Douglas says, there is no basis for that distinction. It makes a difference to the life of the person who is arguing it. There is clearly a difference between degrees of cruelty, but there is no possible basis for distinguishing between good and bad in slavery, because those distinctions have completely collapsed. So anyone making those arguments is not justifying or explaining anything about slavery, for instance, that a good master is better than a bad master. They are simply displaying the evidence of slavery. It is a symptom that people are even forced to have those fights. And he also said that just as there is nothing that the slave can say that can make sense of this, beyond it is not colour but crime. So there's nothing that the slaveholder can say. And again, he says this quite clearly, and it has some echoes at some distance of what I was talking about last time in relation to Bentham and Bentham's case for utilitarianism. So Frederick Douglass is not a utilitarian. But he does say that any argument that slaveholders make to justify slavery, when you examine it, cannot be extended beyond the particular case. So just as Bentham said, one of the great things about the utilitarian test was it asked of any argument, is this just prejudice? Because if it's not prejudice, then it has to be justifiable in terms that transcend the case of the person making it, the interests of the person making it. And Douglas said, throughout his life, from a child to an old man, he never heard an argument for slavery that could stand up to that challenge. Because if it wasn't prejudice, that is, if it wasn't simply defending the interests of the person who happened to be making it, slaveholders do indeed try and justify slavery because they're better off 
as slaveholders than they would be as slaves. But trying to extend that argument, to generalize it, to apply it more broadly outside of the individual case is impossible. There is nothing to be said. There is no argument to be had. It's prejudice. It's crime. It can never be justified. So if Douglas asked that question and came to that conclusion as a child, what follows? So not an argument, what follows? So the first thing that follows is that the only thing to do is to try and get out. You don't reason with it. You don't argue with it. You have to resist it by whatever means are available. So the first response, the response of Frederick Douglass, the child born a slave, was to try and escape. There are various different ways in which he sought to get out from under slavery, to resist it, and ultimately to escape it. So the first one was that he learned to read. He was sent as a child from the plantation on which he was born, and he was moved around eventually to a family, relatives of his original quote-unquote owners in Baltimore, a family in Baltimore where the wife of the man who was his new master taught him to read. She brought him into the house. She quite liked the young Frederick Douglass. She treated him reasonably well, and she thought that he should be educated. So she taught him his letters. It's really important to emphasize in Douglass's story that he didn't think he needed to learn to read in order to understand what was wrong with slavery. So reading was not emancipation because it explained his condition. He had already understood his condition well before he learned to read. Three or four years before he learned to read, he asked that question, why am I a slave? So he didn't need his letters for that. Rather, learning to read became for him emblematic of resistance because as he soon discovered, when he was being taught to read, it went against what his owner thought he was allowed to do. That is, the husband of the woman who taught him to read, when he discovered what was going on, forbade it. And he forbade it explicitly on the grounds that slaves must not be educated. And eventually he persuaded his wife of the truth of that proposition. And so she stopped teaching Douglas. And indeed, she reprimanded him. She punished him when she caught him trying to read the newspaper. So from that point on, he had to be entirely self-taught. And he famously found a copy of a book called The Columbian Orator, which was a kind of how-to-speak guide of eighteenth, late 18th and early 19th century America. Many people taught themselves oratory from this book, and Douglas did too. It became his kind of self-teaching, self-help Bible but he was entirely self-taught. But what he learned from that was two things. First of all, if it's the case that education is anathema to slavery, then again, there is no argument to be had. Anything that outlaws education is itself a crime. And secondly, it confirmed to his mind that everything about slavery was unnatural because the woman who taught him to read, initially at least, was doing the natural thing, the kind thing. Rousseau would recognise it. It was probably, among other things, a form of pity. She was behaving naturally until her husband came in with an entirely spurious and artificial argument, and he had to persuade her that it was in her interests to prevent this boy from reading. It was artificial. It was unnatural. It was part of the crime. There is nothing natural about slavery. Even the kindness that is natural has to be driven out of the people who have it. So for Douglas, learning to read was part of the resistance because it showed him exactly what was and wasn't possible under conditions of slavery. To be human was essentially impossible because it is part of being human to want to learn. 
The next thing that he did to resist was to fight back, literally to fight back. So as a young man, having learned his letters, he got a reputation as being difficult. He was a difficult slave. And as he was moved around, he was eventually sent to a man as his overseer with the terrible name, the terrible nickname, Covey the Slave Breaker. And Covey's job was to break the resistance of young male slaves who didn't know their place. And so he set about breaking Frederick Douglass. And in his autobiographies, Douglass describes this. And it's incredibly painful to read because he did break him. As Douglas says, he was ground down by a mixture of physical and psychological torture. Douglas had seen many terrible things as a slave, many tortures, many crimes, killings. But when it was done to him in this systematic way, he could not bear it. He literally could not bear it. And so he broke. But the way in which he broke was not that he gave up. Covey was meant to break the will of the people that he inflicted these tortures on. But the way that Douglas broke was that he fought back because he concluded he no longer had anything to lose. So he reached a point at which he recognised that were he to fight, were he to resist with physical force, and by this point he was pretty strong. He had grown up into a tall, strong man, or late adolescent as he was then. He knew that if he were to fight back, there was a fair chance it would cost him his life. And he had reached the point where he felt he had nothing left to lose, including his life because his life itself was broken. And again, I think it's really important to emphasize in Douglas's story, he's not saying that this is somehow the hidden strength of the slave, that the advantage that the slave has over the slaveholder is because the slave has got nothing to lose. The slave can afford to be reckless and to fight in a way that is kind of without risk, because even death might be a release. Because Douglas is completely clear throughout his story, he does not want to die. And that it is completely terrible to be in a situation where even the loss of life doesn't seem like something that you should shy away from. That is not the strength of the slave. That is the horror of being a slave. And so he fought back one day when he couldn't take it anymore and Covey came for him with his fists. The young Douglas fought him and eventually overpowered him. And when Covey and the description is a celebrated one, and he repeats it verbatim from his first autobiography to his second, he doesn't change a word. When Covey calls for help, the onlookers do not come and help him. And in the end, it is Covey who is broken by this experience. That is, Douglas comes out of it intact. And Douglas describes it as one of, if not the most important moments in his entire life, when he realized it was possible for him to fight back. But having fought back and having broken the slave breaker, he is still a slave. It hasn't freed him in any meaningful sense. It has freed him in a partial sense from the kind of perpetual torture, punishment, constant fear of what might happen next. But it has not freed him as a slave. He is still entirely the possession of other human beings. And so the final stage of being rescued from slavery by himself, taking himself out of it, is literally to escape. Again, in his autobiography, he has a famous and harrowing description of the plan that he concocted with a small group of fellow young male slaves, a kind of band of brothers, over a number of weeks and months to try and get away, that is to make a run for it for the North. The terror of it, as he describes it, is living in a kind of 
it's almost like a parody of the panopticon world that I talked about last time. To live under slavery is to be constantly overseen by people that you cannot see. You cannot know who is watching you because you are constantly at the mercy of people who may at any moment decide to take arbitrary action against you to punish you for something that you haven't done or something that you have done. You are entirely at the mercy of a kind of hidden watching community over whom you have no conceivable oversight. And so to conspire under those conditions is terrifying. So Bentham's Panopticon was designed, among other things, to prevent prisoners from conspiring together. And I'm not trying to make a line from Bentham to slavery, far from it. But there is that version, that parody of the Panopticon. The most ghastly version of all is the one, anyone who's seen the film Schindler's List, the tower, Eamon Gertz with his gun, taking pot shots at the inhabitants of the concentration camp, what it is like to live under that kind of surveillance. Douglas captures something of what that felt like in the world of pre-Civil War American slavery, the horror of it, and the horror of knowing that they have to escape, but if it goes wrong, again, it probably spells the end. So when do you make your move? When do you finally take the plunge? And eventually they do decide to take the plunge. They decide the next day is going to be the day that they try and get away. But they have been betrayed and immediately it becomes clear that one of their number has let their masters know and they are immediately rounded up. And it is all over for Frederick Douglass and it is all over for his resistance. And then he gets perhaps the greatest stroke of fortune and he describes it as a kind of inexplicable fortune in his own telling of his story. It could mean anything to be captured as someone who tried to escape. It could mean death. But actually, after a terrifying week, he discovers that he is not going to be punished for it. And he is sent to a new kind of slave life, which is to work in Baltimore, back in Baltimore, the city where he learned to read. It's to work in Baltimore as a manual labourer alongside both free black men and also working class white men in a community where, as he describes it, the line between slavery and non-slavery is somewhat blurred. To be a slave in Baltimore was to live a life that, from the outside at least, wasn't obviously radically different from the lives of others alongside whom the young Douglas was working. So this was a new phase of his slave existence. He didn't get the punishment he was expecting. He got a kind of, although it wasn't a reward, he got a kind of betterment, and yet he still has to escape because he is still a slave. So he's still a slave because he is at the mercy of people who may decide the next day to take him away from Baltimore and send him back to some horror show in the Deep South. But he's also a slave, and this is, as he describes it in his autobiography, the moment at which he really cannot take it anymore because he is now working and he is being paid. So he is a wage labourer, but he doesn't get to keep any of the money that he earns. What he earns by his own work goes to his masters, and then he only gets back what they decide to bequeath on him. He is entirely at their mercy, not at the mercy of their punishment at this point, though that could come back at any time. He's at the mercy of their discretion, which is almost for him the unbearable thing. And sometimes Frederick Douglass is held up as a emblematic American because there is in Douglass and in his accounts of his life a streak of a sort of self-help ethos. He's a great believer in hard work. He's a great believer in people earning a living by their own efforts. He's a great believer in people pulling themselves up by their own efforts. 
and he can't bear it that he works and he doesn't get to keep his earnings. And he does escape. And in his autobiography, he doesn't describe the details of his escape because, as he says, he needs to protect those people on the famous, the celebrated Underground Railroad who helped him get out, including the woman, Anna, who was to become his wife. But he does escape to the north. He doesn't thereby become free because he is then simply not a slave, but an escaped slave by the laws of the United States of America at that point in its history. And therefore, he can legitimately be recaptured and sent back. So he's not free and he's not secure, but he is out from under it. He has got out, even if he has not yet got freedom. So what do you do next on Douglas's account? First response to the why question, when you realise as a small child, there is no answer you can accept, is to get out. The second response is then to expose the thing that you have got out from under, that is to expose slavery. Again, not to argue against it. So Douglas did not think he was 20 at this point. He did not think that his new life, the new living that he would make, and he would make a living as a speaker and as a writer and as a newspaper editor, speaking, writing and editing against slavery. He did not think that his new job was to go around the country taking the argument to the slaveholders, taking the argument to the slave party. He believed his job was simply to tell the story of his life. Initially, at least, it was simply to tell the story of slavery, to say what he had seen, what he had witnessed, to recount the horrors, so that people could see it. And to see it, he thought, was to understand it, because even a child could understand it. Torture and killing, and arbitrary punishment, and cruelty, and refusing people even the right to read, and breaking up families arbitrarily, separating children from their mothers as he was separated from his mother. You don't argue against that. You simply reveal it. And he thought you had to reveal it in two ways. So there were two versions, essentially, of slavery that he had experienced in his life. There were many, but there were two essential versions. The first was, in his early years, in a plantation hidden away, a kind of world unto itself, a sort of horror world unto itself, which was very hard to see from the outside because it was quite carefully and literally protected from outside prying eyes. So as a child, all he knew was that world. He says the mask of slavery has to be ripped off it. The veil has to be penetrated so that the deep south can be seen. And to see it is to know its horror. But then the other thing that had to be done was that world of slavery in Baltimore, where the lines appeared to be blurred, where it seemed as though the life of the slave was not necessarily all that different from the life of the people who worked alongside the slave. That also had to be exposed. The line had to be made clear. It is still entirely different to be a slave than to be free, even if you are working at the same labor. So Douglas became a speaker. He became a writer. And he was amazingly good at it. He was a hugely impressive man. He was good looking. He had a great voice. He was astonishingly fluent and eloquent. And he became a kind of sensation on the abolitionist circuit. He was the perfect person to tell the story because it was his story and because he told it so well. It was a litany of horrors, but he was also funny Accounts of hearing Douglas speak often refer to the fact that he liked to make his audience laugh. And he himself sometimes said that if he couldn't make them laugh, it made him uncomfortable. 
The laughter was to mock the slaveholders. Mockery is not an argument. Mockery is part of exposing them for who they really are. But it was also a tale of the things that he had seen. And then in 1845, he wrote his life story, the first version of his life story. The full title of his first autobiography is, I quote, Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, an American Slave. So Douglass faced a problem as a speaker and then as a writer. And the problem was, he saw his job as to expose the horror of the world from which he had come. And he was amazingly good at it. But he was so good at it that sometimes his audiences suspected that he was too good to be true. And some of the people, the abolitionists, the white abolitionists who took him on the speaking circuit, used to try and persuade him to tone it down a bit, not to be quite so eloquent, so that his audience wouldn't think, if it's as bad as he says, how has he turned out so well? How could such a horrific system have produced such a remarkably impressive human being? So he was sometimes told to sound a bit more plantation, or even worse, it would be assumed by his audience because, as it was known of Douglas, that he had mixed parentage. He didn't know who his father was, but he knew his father was white, was one of his owners. The assumption was made that what made Douglas so eloquent was the white and not the black in him. And he had to resist that throughout his life and certainly the early part of his life and his speaking career. He made a point in his autobiographies of saying that his mother could read, his mother who was a slave, whom he only met a few times in his life, who died when he was very young, from whom he was separated. But when he met her, he discovered that she was very rare among the slaves of his acquaintance, in that she too could read. So if he inherited anything, he wanted his audience to know. He inherited it from her. But he also made a point in his first autobiography of giving it a subtitle. And the subtitle is Written by Himself because he knew that he would be suspected of having had his autobiography so beautifully written, ghostwritten. And it's the charge that's often made against miraculously good writers who come from obscure, or in Douglas's case, worse than obscure circumstances, that they cannot have written it themselves. So the emblematic version of this argument is the case that still gets made that Shakespeare cannot have written Shakespeare's plays because they're too good. They're too, not just good, they're too transcendently remarkable to have come from the mind of some obscure boy from the middle of England. Stratford-upon-Avon is not a place where someone like Shakespeare comes from. Surely Shakespeare must have been the Earl of this or the Prince of that. Incidentally, the best argument I've ever heard against the idea that Shakespeare didn't write Shakespeare's plays is to say, what would we think about Charles Dickens if we didn't know for sure, that Charles Dickens was who he says he was, because there was enough evidence to prove it. So this boy, who had very little education, whose father was a debtor, who spent part of his formative years in a boot-blacking factory, who had ultimately a miserable childhood and very little good education, surprisingly little formal education, and suddenly emerges age 20, the same age that Douglas emerged, as this miraculous writer seemingly all-knowing and all-seeing writer, able to express anything, to understand anything. If we didn't know that Dickens's story was true, just as with Shakespeare, people would say, it's not actually Charles Dickens who wrote this. It has to be someone with a better education. But it was true of Dickens. It was true of Douglas. And I think it was true of Shakespeare. It sometimes happens. 
Frederick Douglass was a great admirer of Charles Dickens, and Dickens knew a lot and admired Frederick Douglass. Dickens took a trip to America in 1842 in which he saw for himself what he immediately understood as the terrible hypocrisy of slavery, of a society founded on slave labour. And he exposed it in part in his novel Martin Chuzzlewit, and Douglas read Martin Chuzzlewit. And when Douglas became a writer, Dickens read Douglas. And they were similar people in some ways. They had overlapping lives. They were both performers, great speakers of their words as well as writers. They both became editors. To be an editor in the 19th century was to have an extraordinary kind of power because to have your own publication was to be able to shape public debate. And both Douglas and Dickens made sure that they had their own publications to edit. In 1845, 1846, Frederick Douglass took an extended book tour to Ireland and to England. And at the end of that tour, there was a farewell dinner for him. But Dickens was meant to attend and he didn't. He sent his excuses. He had something else to do. And I have a feeling that I've got no basis for this and a feeling that maybe Charles Dickens was a little jealous of Frederick Douglass. He recognised the similarity in them, but he knew that Douglass had the better story, the purer story, the purer version of that story, because there is something categorically different about being a slave. It's not the same as having escaped a boot blacking factory. That trip, 1845-1846 to Ireland and England, changed Frederick Douglass's life in a number of ways. So it was a book tour. He was promoting the book and the book was a bestseller and it made him famous. And he was a celebrity by the time he arrived in Ireland. There's a great novel that was written a few years ago, published in 2013 by Colin McCann called Transatlantic which tells the story of various crossings between America and Ireland. And at the heart of it is the story of Frederick Douglass's trip to Ireland in 1845. And at the heart of that is the terrible truth that he arrived in a country that it was at the beginning of the most terrible famine in its history. What we now call the Irish potato famine was just starting. And Douglas saw the beginnings of it. He saw a country in which millions of people were going to either starve to death or be forced to emigrate. And it raised a question which was a real question, an acute question for Frederick Douglass, when he saw the conditions in which Irish peasants lived in the middle of the 19th century, when he saw a people who were so dependent on a single crop, potatoes, that when that crop failed, they and their families and their children starved to death. Isn't that worse than slavery? There was no famine in the American South. Slaves were fed. Douglas had never seen anything quite so terrible as the worst conditions in which Irish peasants lived. And yet he remained adamant that it mustn't be confused with slavery. Even famine mustn't be confused with slavery. Because though slaves in the American South did not starve, food could be used to torture them. It could be taken away from them. They were subject to arbitrary control. If you were a peasant in Ireland... You did not have your family broken up simply for reasons of either profit or cruelty, deliberately by people who owned you. You may face the most terrible fate. Your family might die before your eyes, but they didn't die before your eyes because of the explicit cruelty of people who were your owners. And for Douglas, that had to remain a distinct category of human experience. To be a slave was not the same as to be someone who might starve to death. It was different, but in some crucial way, it was also worse. He made the same argument when he came to England. 
This was 1846. It was the early years of the working class movement, the radical movement known as Chartism. And Chartists often made the case that the life of the working man in England, particularly in the north of England, was a form of slavery, wage slavery. The conditions were so terrible. The exploitation was so harsh. The power of the masters, the people who ran and owned the factories, was so absolute. And Douglas refused to accept it. It was not slavery. It was indeed terrible in many ways, but it was not slavery because slavery is categorically different. Slavery is nothing but cruelty, nothing but cruelty. And therefore, he says in his autobiography, the word must not be misused. Three things changed Douglas on that trip. The first was that he noticed that in monarchical, aristocratic England, Britain, he didn't encounter so much racism. It was a less racist but more hierarchical society than democratic America. Democratic America was less hierarchical and more racist. He noticed, for instance, that he did not encounter much racism when he was in Ireland, but he encountered enormous amounts of racism from Irish immigrants in the United States. And he concluded that in America, beyond slavery, there was another issue that lay over the top of it, was distinct from it, but lay over the top of it. And his name for it was caste, C-A-S-T-E, caste, racial hierarchy that is inbuilt in the social structures, not just of the South, but of the North as well. Caste, which then as now was a word often associated with Indian society and the various castes there from Brahmin to untouchable. Douglas concluded that America was also a caste-based society. And so even and when inevitably slavery was abolished, because it could not be sustained, it could not last, there was another task, the deeper challenge of undoing a caste-based society. And that was a project of many lifetimes. The second thing that changed for him was that his English and Scottish admirers, indeed, abolitionists working in Britain for the ending of slavery in the United States, bought his freedom for him. So he was still technically at that point under American law a slave and just an escaped slave. He could have remained in England and been safe there, but he wanted to go back. And so his freedom was bought for him. And this angered many of his American supporters and champions who felt that by buying his freedom, he was essentially compromising with the system with which he said there could be no compromise. He was paying lip service to the legitimacy of something that he said was not just illegitimate, but was from top to bottom a crime. And Douglas decided that he didn't care what they thought. He wanted his freedom. And he wanted his freedom in order to be able to return safely, as safe as he could be, to the United States to continue the fight. And as part of that, he also, during and after his trip to Ireland and Britain, broke with the people with whom he had been allied in his early years as a campaigner for the abolition of slavery. So this was the group known as the Garrisonians, after William Garrison, their their leader, their champion. And initially, Douglas was taken up by them and indeed became a huge admirer of Garrison and Garrisonian abolitionism. But it had certain qualities that over time, he came to consider the wrong ones. So the Garrisonian approach to abolition was a moral approach. It was a kind of religious and religious revivalist approach too. The idea was that slavery was America's original sin, its founding sin. And America needed essentially to be purified. And that meant that there could not just be no compromise with the American South. There could essentially be no compromise with the United States of America. 
it was rotten, it was corrupted. What was needed was some kind of fresh start. And therefore, the Garrisonian approach was exemplary. That's why they loved Douglas, because he was such an exemplary version of the former slave. And the idea was to be purer than the thing that had to be got rid of. And that meant Garrisonianism was nonviolent. It didn't want to be corrupted by violence. It was shot through with religion. It was about a kind of transcendence. But also, crucially, it saw itself as beyond or above politics. That is, it did not advocate fighting to rectify the United States of America. It was for disunion, the breaking up of the United States of America. The rotten system had to be got rid of. It was for starting again. And that stance included discouraging free American black men from taking part in the political system. They were entitled to, but Garrisonians discouraged free black men from voting because that was a compromise with something rotten. And in his early 20s, that was the creed that Douglas signed up to, but he changed his mind. And part of the reason that he wrote his second autobiography was to capture that change of mind. There were two things that he decided were necessary and therefore made it necessary for him to break with Garrison. The first was violence. Slavery couldn't be argued with, it had to be fought. And if you were going to fight it, you couldn't just fight it by being pure. You had to literally fight it from his early fight with Covey the slave breaker. He concluded that slavery would only ultimately be defeated by violence. And there is much more violence and indeed celebration of violence in the second autobiography. At one point he says, let the cholera come and take them. It doesn't matter what kills these people. They must be got rid of. Violence could take lots of different forms. Douglas became a friend of John Brown, who in 1859 launched the famous raid on Harper's Ferry that was designed to foment an insurrection of slaves in the American South and was a trigger, an early warning of what was to come in the Civil War. Douglas was very nearly involved in the raid. He actually had to escape to Canada to escape the consequences of it, which accused his critics of either calling him a coward or calling him a would-be terrorist. But he was okay with that kind of violence. He was actually okay with any kind of violence if it would end slavery. He says in his second autobiography that slaves are allowed to do anything to their masters because there are no laws, because they are living in a system which is nothing but crime. So violence had to be embraced. But the other thing that had to be embraced was politics. He concluded that the Constitution of the United States of America was not an inherently corrupt and rotten document because, as the Garrisonian said, it was intertwined with the institutions of slavery. Douglas read it and he concluded that it provided the basis for the abolition of slavery because slavery was inconsistent with it. You could not have a state with that constitution that treated human beings as the property of other human beings. So there was a case to be made for using the constitution of the Union of the American States to abolish slavery. One year before Douglas published My Bondage and My Freedom, a new party was launched in the United States, a national party, or would-be national party, called the Republican Party. And that became Frederick Douglass's party. Once he decided he wanted to be in politics, that was his party, and he became a lifelong Republican. The Republican Party that fought 
and ultimately won the Civil War, was Douglas's party. He had his doubts about Abraham Lincoln, the man who was eventually to become the president, who both won the war and emancipated the slaves. He knew in Lincoln there was a lot of caste-based thinking, racial thinking. He knew Lincoln's racism. He was also suspicious of some of Lincoln's ideas. Lincoln, at various points, flirted with the possibility of sending free American slaves back to Africa, repatriating them or recolonizing them, which was abhorrent to Douglas. The whole point of emancipation was to be emancipated into American society and American politics, not separated out from it again. Having made absolutely clear that in Baltimore, the line between slavery and non-slavery was absolute. Once that line had been abolished, there was every reason for everyone to join in. But Douglas also knew in Lincoln, there was the most important politician of his lifetime. And in many ways, the greatest day of his life was the day when Lincoln signed into law the Emancipation Proclamation. And after the Civil War, Douglas lived a whole nother generation of his life. He became, in some respects, an establishment figure. He worked for the American government. He became a kind of ambassador to Haiti at one point. He campaigned for education. He campaigned for women's suffrage. He believed that there were many other injustices that needed to be addressed in the American system, that to make good on the promise of America was not just to abolish slavery. But even the abolition of slavery, of course, required much more than just the enacting of the law. And as I said, he saw both Reconstruction and the end of Reconstruction. He saw both the hope and the failure of that hope. He saw it all in his life, in his long life. All of it lived in the shadow of that original question, why am I a slave? And all through his life, he fought with the challenge that he fought when he first started speaking about and against slavery by telling his story, which was that he was not just a remarkable man, he was one of the most remarkable Americans of his age. In some ways, he was the most remarkable American of his age. He was a quite extraordinary human being. Apart from anything else, he was an extraordinarily talented, naturally talented human being. And yet he had to stand in for a whole people. He had to be emblematic of his race, at the same time as not just being unusual in relation to his race, because he wasn't unusual in relation to his race. He was unusual in relation to everybody. There was nobody like Frederick Douglass. And yet he had to be an emblem of something. And all his life, he found that hard. He hated it, but he also hated it when other people became emblematic of his race in his place. He was a difficult man. He was a prickly man. He knew it in himself. He was short-tempered. He was somewhat vain. He had plenty to be vain about. In his second autobiography, which is, I think, his masterpiece, My Bondage and My Freedom, it was written partly for a political reason to establish his break with the Garrisonians, and it comes with an introduction by a man called James McCune Smith, a celebrated doctor, a black doctor in America, educated in Scotland, but also a publisher and a writer, and in his own right, an extraordinary man of letters. And he became Douglas's ally, and he writes an introduction in which he talks about Douglas's remarkable journey, including his journey not just away from slavery but away from high-minded Garrisonianism into the practical engagement with the political challenge of ending slavery. And in it, McCune Smith says of Frederick Douglass that he is America's representative man. And by that, he partly means just what I've described, 
that Douglas had to somehow stand in for something. There's a sort of weird inversion of what Rousseau was doing in the Second Discourse. Rousseau was trying to tell the story of the human race as though it were the story of a single person, almost a single life, a single narrative. Douglas had to tell his story, his narrative, as though it were the narrative of a whole race. And it was incredibly hard and in many ways incredibly painful for him. But he was also the representative man in another sense, because on that journey or those stages, once he asked the why question as a child, first thing, resist, escape. Second thing, expose. Third thing, undo. First, escape from slavery, then expose slavery, then undo it, abolish it. One, two, three. So what comes next? What's the fourth stage in that journey? And Douglas was clear, the thing that comes next is politics. So completely unlike Rousseau, Douglas believed in political representation. He believed in some people speaking for other people, but he believed in political education. He believed in progress. He was in many ways quite a conventional person. He was a Republican. He believed in hard work and self-help. When he was in Ireland, he had his own prejudices too. He thought that part of the reason that the Irish were suffering their terrible famine was drink, drink and Catholicism. He wasn't free from his own prejudices about what he saw as the laziness of other people. But he was a representative man because he believed in representative politics. He believed that it was possible once the great terrible division in American life, the unarguable with division because it was just wrong, had been abolished. What came next for Frederick Douglass was politics. Details of further reading for these podcasts is available on our website at talkingpoliticspodcast.com. Just click on the link for History of Ideas. Next week, David is talking about Samuel Butler and his utopian fantasy, Erehan. How did a man on a sheep farm in mid-19th century New Zealand foresee the coming of artificial intelligence? <laughs> <laughs>